Hi, my name is Kirk Hamilton, your host of the Staying Healthy Today Show. This is a show where I bring you key experts in the fields of nutrition, prevention, integrative, and lifestyle medicine. Today's show topic is Know Your Real Risk of Heart Attack. Our guest today is Dr. Warwick Bishop. He's a practicing cardiologist, best-selling author, keynote speaker, and has a passion to help people prevent heart disease on a global scale by early detection. Dr. Bishop is a graduate from the University of Tasmania School of Medicine in 1988. He completed his advanced training in cardiology in Hobart, Tasmania, and became a fellow of the Royal Australian College of Physicians. And he is the author of the book, Know Your Real Risk of Heart Attack, published in 2018. So welcome, Dr. Bishop. Thanks for coming on the show today. Thank you very much for having me, Kirk. Well, just interesting part of the title of your book when you say real risk of heart attack, I guess that implies that most people aren't getting to know the real risk of their heart attack. <laughs> Why did you name the book that? Oh, Kirk, I think over the years, we all know people who look fit and well, undertake lifestyle modification, are careful about their food selection, don't appear on the outside to have any real risks at all. And contrary to all our beliefs and understandings, Sometimes these people have heart attacks and, you know, the conversation is, can you believe so-and-so who was, you know, looked like the picture of health had a heart attack? And there is a real disconnect, I think, between the way people can look on the outside and the way their arteries can be on the inside. And the book is about trying to understand the, that gap and understand how to really get a, a good handle on your actual risk. How did you, was there an aha moment where this, you know, you were doing your traditional cardiology and your traditional risk factors and all of a sudden you said, uh, something's not working right or I missed something? <laughs> yeah. Well, look, there was a moment that was really very confronting and that happened back in 2005. I was on my way to work on a weekend. There was a fun run in progress, literally through the streets very near my hospital. As I was driving, I noticed there was a commotion by the side of the road and a man had literally dropped dead with a heart attack by the side of the road. I didn't realise at the time, I just stopped as a good Samaritan to see if I could help because I'm a doctor. I helped in this man's resuscitation and turned out he did extremely well. A couple of days later, he did so well, he was on the front page of the local newspaper. And just to show my staff, I took the newspaper into my office to show them, only to have one of my staff point out that I'd seen the very same man about 18 months earlier and reassured him after a treadmill test. Got it. <laughs> now, uh, I don't, if you've got that, I can't begin to tell you how that, uh, that rocked me, actually. I went back and looked at the notes. What did I do wrong? What? What could I have done differently? And really look at the time, I did everything according to the book, but it made me realize that everything according to the book for that guy didn't work. And so I became very open to other opportunities to be more precise. So that was a aha and a bit of a uh-oh. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that would be. Um, so when, how did you start investigating then where to go next? Well, um, a part of our training obviously requires that we keep abreast and up to date with all the changes. And that was over a decade, a decade ago. And um, obviously, I went to meetings and read journals, and it became clear to me that an emerging technology was imaging of the heart using CT scanning. And really, that started to make some sense to me as a way to really understand the health of someone's arteries rather than necessarily put them through a treadmill test and say, you're healthy, I thought there was a lot more value, particularly based on that fun runner story, a lot more value to say, look, 
you're healthy but your arteries are not, this is what we need to do. Uh, that's where it started. So you, you mentioned the Australian cardiovascular risk factor calculator in your, your book. And so was that something you did frequently? And how does that relate to telling you anything, if anything, about what's happening inside the coronary arteries? Yeah, look, I think, I think this is absolutely key to understanding the new conversation I believe we should be having about risk. And really, it would be fair to say that that absolute cardiovascular disease risk calculator, which is the same sort of tool that's been used across the States and across Europe for many years, is an understanding that there are particular associations, things like blood pressure or age or male sex or cholesterol levels, that can be linked to people having coronary events. Now, it's really important to understand that these associations uh, represent what we see in a population of people with those conditions. And so when you deal with an individual, that population assessment, which might be a 5 to 10% risk of an event in 5 to 10 years, may not be entirely applicable to that individual because what that individual sitting opposite you wants to know is, am I going to have a heart attack in the next five or 10 years? Yes or no? Not what's the risk of 100 people just like me having an event in the next five years. Tell me then the technology. We've said CT, um, coronary calcium scanning, uh, and then there's CT angiography. Can you explain what what CT scanning is and what you're looking for? And then what maybe, when you find it, what that tells us about the plaque or the, the thickening of the arteries? Yeah, absolutely. Look, Kirk, I'm sure a lot of the people who are listening to this already understand that a CT scanner is simply a a three-dimensional X-ray and we can take X-rays of the heart. And we've been able to do that in the last five to ten years quite broadly because the technology has improved to allow us to take pictures of a moving object. The heart beats, you know, 70-odd times a minute. So it's always been difficult to image, but our technology now allows us to do it in a reproducible and accurate way. Now, we can take x-rays of the heart using a CT scanner in two ways. One is we can use, uh, we can take those images without any injection of contrast at all. And if we do that, uh, one of the interesting things is that calcium, which can be part of build-up of plaque in the arteries, shows really clearly. So if we take an x-ray without any contrast, any dye, we can get a really good appreciation of calcium in those arteries. But we can then take another step and put contrast or dye through those arteries to give us even more information. And that extra information relates to the things that you touched on, like the sort of plaque that's in there. Because we can pick up non-calcific plaque by injecting contrast. We can pick up if there's a narrowing or not. We get an idea as to whether the vessel has changed shape from the, the plaque in it We also get an idea of how big the blood vessels are and where in that artery that uh, plaque may be. All characteristics which may guide the intensity of therapy we want to implement for that individual person. So the initial screening is usually just without the dye, the coronary calcium scan. So explain when you get calcification, how does that relate to the plaque or how do you define calcified plaque and what it does? So the process of plaque formation is really one of uh, cholesterol moving into the artery wall. And it's quite possible that, in fact, it's a healing process that goes wrong. It's quite possible that 
shear points within the arteries or where there are points of weakness that cholesterol moves in really is the body's way to heal. Now, as cholesterol moves into those arteries, then various other cells move in and those cells then start to work with that cholesterol and that area of inflammation or wear and tear and there's a little bit of scarring occurs. As that scarring occurs, that scarring forms a matrix for calcium within the blood to settle there. And so plaque is a complex pathological process, a complex cellular process with lots of things going on. But one of the things that goes on is a little bit of uh, scarring and fibrosis. And with that, calcium can move into that and give us an indicator of presence of plaque being there. The analogy I often use for my patients is that uh, the buildup of cholesterol in the arteries is the tiger that we're worried about. And calcium is very much the footprint of that tiger. <laughs> that's interesting. So when you do the, the coronary calcium scan, that's the cheaper test and that's the screening test. So tell us how you use that test and why you feel so strongly, and I think you do, I'm kind of putting words in your mouth, uh, that should be done on a kind of a routine screening basis? A number of my colleagues, well, highly regarded colleagues in this space have described uh, calcium scoring as the mammogram of the heart, and uh, I don't want to <laughs> take their line without recognizing them because it's not my line, but that is a, just a beautiful way to describe it. We know coronary artery disease kills more women than breast cancer. We know coronary artery disease definitely kills more men than breast cancer. You know, we have absolutely no trouble with imaging women uh, with a mammogram to look for evidence of cancer. Why wouldn't we look for evidence of plaque for the single biggest killer in the Western world? It makes absolutely no sense to me. It's a good way of putting it. Well, <laughs> I've, I've had mine checked. <laughs> so have I. So have I. So, so who, do you decide, who do you decide to get this? Or, or like say I'm a primary care physician assistant. So it's a simple test I can order and I do order it. When would you say I should order it when I'm seeing my primary care patient just routinely for physical and, or, or what? Look, I, I actually touch on this in the book because it's a really... It's a really complicated question, I think, Kirk. And, and the reason I think it's a complicated question is that there's a mul multiple factors that come into play. Uh, my own practice, in fact, is to use the calcium score predominantly as a gatekeeper to further investigation. And so although it's not a guideline recommendation, what I do has some logic behind it. And very much that's the reason I wrote the book because in a space or in an, uh, a time frame current where there isn't a clear guideline around uh, going beyond calcium scoring for risk, I think it's important to inform individuals that you can inject contrast to get a CT coronary angiogram, which may provide extra information. And so my book has been written to encourage people to get that information and have those conversations with their uh caring doctor you talked about coronary um, ct angiography which is a more invasive procedure i'm talking about when would a primary when would you like to see in your ideal world knowing what you know um, your primary care physicians using the coronary calcium scan as you know in their in their patients yeah yeah so my my general practice would be 50 years of age for men and 60 years of age for women unless there are significant other risk factors that may suggest that this person be, could be carrying a greater risk than average. 
So if there was a really bad family history of premature coronary disease, if there was significant elevation of cholesterol levels, pre-diabetes, hypertension, things that might bring that individual's risk forward, you know, a decade or, or thereabouts. Is there a number one score on the, on the initial coronary calcium scan that would tell you that you want to reflect that to a CT angiogram, the more invasive one? Or is there, uh, you know, somebody has to have chest pain to go on to CT angiography? Or, or what would you, what are some of your criteria? Yeah, so look, the current guidelines are really that calcium scoring alone should be used for risk. And the current guidelines are that CT coronary angiography should be used for chest pain. So what I'm going to reflect to you is what my practice is for risk, which is not standard. But my practice is, even if I see a small amount of calcification, I will tend to proceed to CT coronary angiography, particularly particularly so in younger people. And particularly if there's other risks like family history or diabetes, my experience is that probably in my practice, and there's not good data on this, which is why there are no guidelines around it, but in my own practice, probably 15 to 20% of patients will have CT coronary angiographic findings that significantly alter this, the management strategy you would have put in place had you relied on the calcium score alone. And uh, look, I, I saw a patient literally in the last fortnight who was 64 years of age looking to retire uh, essentially just wanted a, a, a 64,000 kilometre check. We sent him off for CT imaging. I prepped him beforehand and said, look, we'll do a calcium score. If that's clear, we pull you off the table. If it's abnormal, we'll follow that up with uh, contrast and these are the risks, benefits, costs, etc. He was happy to proceed with that. His calcium score, Kirk, was five. For a 64-year-old gentleman, this is a low score and low risk, and you know that. When we injected contrast, he had a 10 millimeter soft plaque at his distal left main so <laughs> so so the way so, you, so the way you describe it is i mean you know all right so i, I would I, I did have a ct angiogram but i mean but almost everybody would end up having a ct angiogram well if we if we start with uh well you also have to put it into context remember for starting with 50 year old men 25 percent of those men will have zero scores yep and then if we take the remaining seven if we so if we start with originally 100 men we know that coronary artery disease will kill 50 of them yeah <laughs> if we take out 25 percent with the zero scores at um at 50 years of age we're now dealing with 75 men of which uh, 50 of those men, two-thirds, are going to be dying from a heart attack. So to be screening uh, 75 men to find 50, it doesn't, it doesn't seem that unreasonable. No, I'm, I'm listening. I'm listening. I'm thinking <laughs> the screening test should be the CT angiography. <laughs> well, uh, well, I, I, mean, it, I don't... I think... I think using calcium scoring as a zero score uh, as a gatekeeper is a really good start. Okay. But look, once you've, once you've seen plaque, I have too many. And in fact, you'd see in my book, I've got examples of cases where there's a, a tiny bit of calcification and a big fat wanting to rupture juicy plaque in association. And, um, you know, I think I, I can't, we don't have a way 
to know who will and who won't have greater cholesterol burden compared to the calcification or not at this stage. And so, you know, I think I'll look and find out. So, you know, sorry. No, 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 it's fine. So when you do this, I guess you made your case. All right. So let's say that you do the CT angiography. So is it that clear to you that there's, is there not three types of plaque, a fibrous cap, and then there's a mix, and then there's the real inflammatory uh, lipid laden plaque? Is that kind of how it works? How do you tell from looking at the, the um, CT angio about the really inflamed plaque? Look, I, I think we're still a little way off from uh, getting real clarity on that just on CT. And I think multimodality imaging with uh, isotopes and MRI may in the future give us some clarity on that. But what we can see really clearly on a CT is whether um, it's a non-calcific plaque or not. And we can get a non-calcific plaque burden and we can locate that in the artery and we can see if there's remodeling or stenosis. And we can see how big is the artery that's involved. These are really good starting points for figuring out whether someone's risk based on their imaging is low, intermediate, high or very high and therefore guide your intensity of therapy, uh, low intensity, intermediate, high or very high. And I think the inflammation issue is a really complicated one, which is clearly uh, receiving some research and probably uh, gets dealt with based on those high-risk features that we would uh, see through other means anyway. Uh, we are talking to cardiologist Dr. Work Bishop from Hobart, Tasmania, and he is the author of Know Your Real Risk of Heart Attacks. So before we get into kind of, let's say you, I, I want, I'm interested in what your, you know, mild, medium, and intensive therapy is. So do you ever measure markers of inflammation? Like I, you know, I suggested myeloproxidase or lipoprotein, LPA2. Do you, do you think they're not ready yet for prime time or, or what? Look, I don't think we fully understand the whole process, Kirk. And if you've looked at any CT coronary angiograms, you'll understand there's a, a huge spectrum of the way people develop plaque in their arteries. There are people who predominantly put calcification in their arteries without a lot of soft plaque. And the opposite, which is what we were talking about, people putting a little bit of calcification, but really dominant soft plaque atheroma as well. And we don't have an understanding of what markers point to either of those processes at this stage. My own practice, though, and my own observation is that the people who have a propensity to put predominant non-calcific plaque in their arteries are people who seem to be uh, the pre-diabetic types, the uh, elevated triglycerides, low HDLs, central adiposity, perhaps insulin resistance. And uh, the people with a, a propensity to put in calcification in their arteries, probably the LP little a's sometimes the smokers but you know i don't think we've got good data to guide us there having said all that if i find people who are really high risk either with a high calcium score percentile or high absolute number or if i find people with really adverse soft plaque or non-calcific plaque features i will often check a heap of novel markers and included in that is uh, high sensitivity CRP. But I'll also do things like lipoprotein small a, homocysteine. I'm interested in uh, insulin resistance and sensitivity as well. So I'll do fasting insulin and glucose and get a HOMA 
calculation on that, which is a homeostatic metabolic assessment. Okay. But so there's nothing biochemicals, because CRPs, I can tell you, to me, I mean, I do these LP, LA2s, and myeloproxases and CRPs all the time, and CRP can be absolutely perfect, and the other two can go up and down, and I've seen that over and over again. So that's to me, is not a, a great marker, but... My my question then is, you're really relying on what you see, correct? To- I think, yeah, I, th- I would put to you that I think the proof is in the pudding rather than in the perceived associations. So if I see someone with elevated cholesterol and I think they're at high risk, if I look at their arteries and there's nothing in their arteries, then there's nothing in their arteries. And I think the inflammation story is a little bit the same. We, we don't really have uh, clear information on the best way to deal with it. I mean, the Cantos trial is interesting and there's a fair bit of work going into culture scene at the, at the moment. And um, yeah, Jupiter suggested that inflammation was important as well. So we can't neglect it, but I don't think we know how to really clinically deal with it uh, broadly. So I don't use it routinely. So let me, let's say you have someone and there's a nice big clump of hot plaque, but they're asymptomatic. How do you aggressively deal with that? Well, I would firstly engage them in the process because I think an educated patient generally gets the best healthcare and they're the most engaged. So until you've educated someone and explained your your position and your understanding and thoughts around their condition, it's very hard to bring them into the process. So um, I'll give them the, this is what we found and this is what I think about it explanation. So they're right up to date with where my objectives will be. And then, um, you know, if they've got really high risk features, I really try and treat them to targets that would be considered appropriate for secondary prevention or more, depending on what I've seen in there, uh, in the arteries. Well, so tell me how you use statin drugs because um, they get used a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they do. They do get used a lot. I well, mean- I think the answer. I, I really think the answer to uh, statins, like any medication, is to step back uh, in the first instance and look at the risk-benefit equation for the individual. And so, although I use a lot of statins and I'm involved in lipids a lot, um, I don't take a statin. And the reason I don't take a statin is I have no evidence of plaque buildup in my coronary arteries or carotid arteries. Now, that means that if I took the drug just based on my cholesterol, I'm treating the cholesterol, I'm not treating a process. And the benefit is negligible because I don't have the process going on in my arteries which means the risk is all related to the downside of the medication. So I think it's really important for each person to have a risk-benefit discussion about their therapy. So if we go back to that 64-year-old bloke, man, gentlemen, we use the word bloke for a fellow here in Australia. For this 64-year-old man with a large plaque of his distal left main, which would kill him if it erupted or gave rise to a, a thrombus, I would treat him very aggressively and I'd say to him, look, secondary prevention targets currently are in the order of 1.8 to 1.6 millimoles per litre or less. What's that, 70 something in your... I don't know. I was was praying you do the conversion (laughs) for me. (laughs) I think it's it's 70 odd in your lingo. So um, we want to get him right down. And I'd say this is the reason why. And so I would start with a statin. I would add in a zetamibe. If he had side effects, I'd say, well, we need to find a way around them uh, because your benefit from these uh, medications is really clear. If you have plaque. Correct. Okay. And so the discussion for this guy becomes really clear. We're going to drive this hard because of this plaque. Your risk is really clear if we can drive that. that may, oh, Sorry, your, yeah, your risk is really clear so the drug will give you good benefit. The equation is in the, your favour if we can get it on board for you. And I think, 
I think the way to approach stems or any medications is a risk benefit. So let me ask you this. In your own case, let's say you had really high cholesterol. Let's say you're in the 250s, 260s or something like that. And, but you have no plaque. I mean, you, you, you've done no calcium. Now, so if you had no calcium, would you have done the CT angio on yourself? It would depend on my age. So I, if I were, I'm just over 50 now, but, and I had my scan done before. Or I was 50, right? So I would have done fine slices. So rather than a standard Gaston score of three millimeters, I would have used uh, the fine cuts, which is 0.6, depending on your machine, or 0.7. And by doing the fine slices for people less than 50 years of age, you can be slightly more precise in picking up any calcification at all. Now, if on fine slices I had a zero score, I would see that as really quite reassuring, at least in the short to intermediate term. Meaning five to ten years? Meaning meaning three to five years, because remember you just said I had significant elevated cholesterol. Right, but no plaque. Okay. Correct. Now, if I found calcification, Kirk, even a fleck at less than 50 years of age with elevated cholesterol... I would proceed on to CT coronary angiography. And, and that's younger patient, higher risk. You just want to make sure that there's nothing there. I think this is really important. The guarantee from a zero calcium score is based on a standard population. And so if you're looking at a patient who's got a terrible family history, elevated cholesterol, pre-diabetes, I don't think we can apply the same guarantee so the conversation i have with those sort of people is standardly we give you a very low five to ten year risk but based on your characteristics based on your other risks we ought bring you back sooner and based on the premise that you've got an environment for development of plaque it may be prudent to put you on a small dose or low intensity uh, therapy regime till you know we get clearer information down the line as you get older so aside from a stent or angioplasty or a bypass what when you say aggressive therapy are you just talking about aggressive statin therapy and aspirin or what are you talking about so for these people i'll uh, tend to try and check their lipoprotein small a i'll have a low threshold for adding in azetamide if their lp little a is elevated I'll, I'll talk to them about adding in nicotinic acid. If their HDL is low, I'll talk to them about adding in nicotinic acid. And, of course, I'll encourage them to look at weight loss, weight loss and lifestyle modification to support the process. If we've got good doses of statin and azetamide on board, plus or minus something like the plant sterols, plus or minus supplementation with nicotinic acid, plus good lifestyle stuff, then I also want to make sure that they're their blood pressure is well controlled. We keep that down as close as possible and then see where we are. Most of the time we get people to good levels by doing that. Very rarely we don't. And I think if that's the case, then I'm starting to have conversations with pay people about using some of these newer agents for lowering cholesterol, which appear uh, very effective, but unfortunately really quite expensive. Let's chat about what your lifestyle efforts are, your, what you try and drive people to do. So tell me what your optimal, if you could get everybody, that uh, one of your patients at cardiac risk, what diet would you tell them to do? I know it can't be for everybody, but just generically, what would you say? Look, I think probably in the group of patients I see, the most significant dietary intervention would be for the sort of pre-diabetic, elevated triglyceride, lowish HDL group with some insulin resistance. And those people do really well by starting to cut out not only simple carbohydrates, but 
having an eye to poorer quality complex carbohydrates. And if they can start to reduce those, I think that's really beneficial. Um, I do really try and encourage people to exercise, but um, I think that's very hard to be prescriptive. If you don't enjoy exercise, you won't do it routinely. It's very hard. Uh, but I do try and ask, get people to move as much as possible. But my observation is if these people particularly carrying a bit of weight, central adiposity, insulin resistance, if they can cut their carbs, they'll often lose a couple of kilos and they will move more anyway. They'll walk uh, around the office more. They'll climb stairs rather than take the elevator and work from there basically so you don't care much about the discussion of like let's say dr esselton and ornish putting people on plant-based diets that doesn't ring a bell with you well i think if you're cutting out your carbohydrates to a degree you have to replace it with something and if you're replacing it with green vegetables i think that's a really good start i'm very supportive of people taking a plant-based diet predominantly uh, but that but what my observation is that i often send people off to a couple of dietitians who i uh, have worked with to give the patients these details and support them through the process uh, what i've observed is i want to just leave it keep it fairly simple and get one message across to start with but i send them away to get uh, support from a qualified dietitian in that space how about do you have any favorite nutraceuticals or do you believe in them at all like coq10 or magnesium or whatever do you have any Look, that you believe in? Yeah, 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 definitely. So in just in the last couple of weeks, I've sent people off to go and uh, get hold of coenzyme Q10, but principally for people with uh, uh, diminished left ventricular function. So there's absolutely good data that supports CoQ10 in that space. There's plenty of people ask about CoQ10 in terms of reducing side effects from statins, and I think that that's not clearly answered yet in the literature, but I have some patients who clearly report uh, benefits, so I'll offer, offer that as a consideration to patients. Um, I think fish oil is good uh, in various situations, particularly these insulin-resistant patients. It improves insulin sensitivity. It's also good for ventricular ectopic beats, as you're probably aware, and good for triglyceride levels. Uh, nicotinic acid, I think, is good for lipoprotein small a and for raising HDL levels. And I think, look, there's even some work on garlic, which uh, Matt, Professor Matt Budoff has been involved with, and garlic even looks uh, beneficial, though I've not uh, being in the position to use that routinely. Nicotinic acid fell out of favor. And I'm curious, because I don't hear cardiologists, you know, first of all, they don't talk about nutraceuticals too much. And second of all, nicotinic acid just fell out of favor. And I remember talking to William Costelli a long time ago, and, and that was one of his things. But how do you use it? Mainly for the LP little A group, uh, elevated lipoprotein small A, and mainly for the people with low HDL cholesterol. And look, I think the nicotinic acid story confuses me a bit the aim high and thrive trials they weren't particularly good trials and they were people who were already on maximal therapy particularly for aim high these were diabetics as far as i can recall who are on good therapy already and they were looking to demonstrate a benefit but if we roll back say 15 years or thereabouts and look at the hats trial h-a-t-s which was a uh, statin versus statin plus nicotinic acid versus um, antioxidant trial which was a well-run trial with serial invasive angiography they tested nicotinic acid in a low hdl population and not only did they demonstrate incredibly impressive reduction in outcome or improvement in outcome 
But they demonstrated plaque reversal on angiography. And every time there's a conversation about nicotinic acid, no one seems to mention this HATS trial, and I don't understand it, Kurt. What doses do you use to lower lipoprotein A, and how do you use it so people don't get flushed out of their mind? <laughs> yeah, good question. So I actually, um, it's actually hard to get slow-release nicotinic acid. I actually ship some in from the States, which is a slow-release prep, and uh, have it available for my patients. I recommend they take 500 uh, milligrams to a gram. Um, much more than that, uh, I think, does give flushing, even with the slow-release preparation. And much more than that, I think you can potentially run into strife with uh, liver problems into the future. But I'm finding 500 milligrams has a you know 30% rel- relative reduction in LP little a levels. Do you give that in the evening or do you give it in the, with a meal or how do you do that? Because it's an extended release, I don't really mind when the patients take it. I don't think it matters a great deal, to be honest. It's a good question, though. So as we wrap this up, tell us about your book. How do people get it? What, what was your What's your message bottom line message that you want to get across to people that you took all this time and effort to write a book all right well first of all the book is available on my website on amazon on itunes on any ebook platform it's also available as an audio book and i've also written have you planned your heart attack which has a couple of extra chapters in it which i think medical people would find interesting so uh the book's out there i'd love to sell a few copies and get the story out there the reason i wrote it kirk is because what i found was that there was a real inertia and complacency in my colleagues to adopt this technology, which I believe is life-saving. And when I went and spoke to my local associates here, they really found nothing but problems with trying to look at this technology. And I actually found that quite distressing to the point where they wanted to keep the status quo in a situation where I believe we could actually stop people suffering heart attacks unexpectedly out of the blue. Well, I also went and spoke to GPs, the local family doctors in the area, and they were so overcome with their work and their busyness, they didn't really have the chance to learn and listen about this technology. And so I literally wrote the book for educated and informed individuals who want to be proactive about their own health so that they can get the information that they need to have a meaningful conversation with their healthcare professional about whether this is right for me or not. And so I really, I just want to get the message out there because I think this is a great tool. The guidelines are not necessarily supporting it. I've found some of my colleagues are not supporting it. The local doctors don't understand it yet because a lot of them haven't trained with this technology. And so my book is to try and empower the individual because, you know, best educated patients get the best health care. And if I'm summarizing you correctly, most, you know, males at 50, females at 60 have the screening coronary calcium score. But if there's any calcium, we're not even talking, I mean, you don't give a, if, it, if there's minimal, you still would reflex it or desire to reflex it to a CT angiography. That is my practice for the reasons I've indicated to you. It's not standard and I'm not recommending it for all. When I do put patients through that, I make sure I explain to them one-on-one why we're going to do it and they consent understanding the the small increased amount of radiation, the small increase in cost and the uh, very small risk of 
exposure to x-ray contrast causing an allergic response. All right, Dr. Bishop, thanks so much for taking the time in your homeland and you're coming through perfectly clear. So that was great. I was a little worried about that. Thank you so much for taking the time and uh, being on the show today. Thank you very much, Kirk. Uh, Really enjoyed it. Hope uh, we covered some good points. And I want to thank you, the audience, for listening to this edition of the Staying Healthy Today show. There will be a little YouTube summary of it. There will be a link to this podcast and a written summary underneath it. And until next time, stay and be well. 